You know, for centuries, the ultra-wealthy have been putting their money where their mouths are by investing in fine wine. And now, with Vint, you can do that too. At Vint, we offer SEC-qualified investment opportunities of fine wine and spirits curated by our experts with portfolio managers. With Vint, you can invest and diversify into the most sought-after assets that have a history of price appreciation. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Welcome to This Is Civity Radio Show. I'm Gina Valeria. Civity helps people and communities build a culture of respect and empathy across difference, and our interviews explore how people across the country and world are doing this in their communities. Today, we welcome Judd Hendricks, Executive Director of the Global Human Project in Louisville and Project Catalyst for Lean in Louisville. Judd, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Great to have you. So, there's so much I want to ask you about, but Everything I see about you and what you're doing in your community appears to be geared toward creating opportunities for engagement. So talk a little bit about, first yeah. of all, why you have decided to dedicate your time to this endeavor. Well, it started back, um, my original work was I was a Presbyterian pastor, so I've always been really interested in uh, community. And um, 15, gosh, it was 20 years ago, and it started uh, church with a a woman co-pastor and we were really interested in the capacities of some of the works that we were reading were bowling alone and some of these uh, sociologists studying the American culture and one of the the things that kept emerging was that we don't feel like we belong we feel uh, disconnected from each other we feel uh, alone and our our kind of pluralism and diversity is uh, causing us to move into these different groups. And so we wanted to, uh, how do we address that? That was kind of the essential question of how do we create a sense of community with people that takes into account um, our differences? So it's not communities of similarity, but how do we you know, bridge these divides of difference um, through our difference? And so um, I've been about that work for a long time. How do we um, get people together who are different from one another and allow the, the difference to be um, the places from which we grow about our own self-understanding, our understanding of others, and then really interested in how we move not only from connecting with each other around our difference, but collaborating and uh, kind of creating the, the world together that we all want to be in. So uh, I think some of the deep drivers of this work for me are, yeah, how do we move out of our uh, aloneness and out of our uh, separateness and find ways to connect with each other uh, again in ways that are, are meaningful? So the, And that was kind of the energy behind the Global Human Project, the idea of how do we allow the global diversity and kind of the, the globalization that, that is happening not keep us from being humans with with one another. So it's the global human project. How do we become a a global humanity um, that's connected um, through our diversity and with our diversity to help create a better world? So that was... That was some of the energy that that was behind it. How do we connect with each other through our diversity? That makes a lot of sense. And and we can see this in so many ways. I mean, of course, the election and the political discourse. But there's also a study out at the time of uh, our recording here. A study has recently come out talking about how suicides are up 
among Americans because yeah. they're feeling isolated and alone and not connected to each other. Um, so, so this is this has real implications for everybody. Yeah, the 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 crisis is a, a crisis of uh, yeah being alone. There was some work that's also out on resilient cities and what makes a city a resilient city, and a lot of it comes back to do people feel like they belong? Yeah, there's this deep need for belonging, and when people don't feel like they belong, um, there's all kind of other. Um, repercussions of that for our health, um, for um, uh, equity issues, for being connected with one another. So yeah, that's kind of a root at uh, a lot of, and that's what I love about the work that Civity's doing is really how do we engage that structurally and systematically um, to create opportunities for us to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the work you're doing, we would say is very Civity-oriented work, is connecting people across chasms, across a difference, across across the whatever divides are keeping them from connecting. And so um, I do want to ask you about Global Human Project and, and all of this. So yeah, the Global Human Project is a massive undertaking, and it's pretty incredible. So talk a little bit about how that came to be. Yeah, I, um, when I moved out of church work, I um, became a community organizer and community education for a local refugee resettlement um, site that was uh, resettling refugees uh, here in Louisville. And yeah, I was really finding that that this connection, I was in, involved with sponsorship, so how to help Louisvilleans sponsor incoming refugees. So I was building these relationships uh, between uh, Louisvilleans, you know, we're a Midwest town, so somewhat um, traditional in that sense, not a huge diversity, and then we were reselling these refugees that came from all over the world. You know, they were Muslim or they were Hindu or Buddhist. So we had differences of religion and then all of the cultural differences, and the economic differences. And I was finding that these connections that um, Louisvillians were making with these refugees were transforming both. I mean, there were definitely these needs that refugees have to be welcomed and have some significant needs. But the the sponsors were just talking about how amazing these relationships were, especially when they move into spaces of mutuality where these differences really became uh, bridges and really, I think, opened up the, the awareness and the consciousness of those that were sponsoring them to really what this global world was about. So I was really interested in what happens psychologically and sociologically in these relationships of diversity. And so the Global Human Project, um, then uh, started the Global Human Project uh, as a way of creating um, innovative programs. So it's kind of a, an incubator of programs that, that people that have good ideas, how do we come together with that kind of initial uh, desire of bringing people together. One of the things that we were working on that we created was called Walk a Mile in My Shoes, a migration and refugee simulation. I saw that, and I was wondering where that came from. Yeah, it was um, really an effort to get uh, to help us experience empathy and compassion and awareness around what a refugee or a migrant might face. So it's a, about an hour and a half experience um, that we take to schools and do in communities uh, to help people have a kind of a first-person awareness of what it would be like to be a refugee. So essentially you um, 
take on the role of one of our immigrant refugee communities that are coming into the United States, like a Bhutanese family or Korean family, a, a family from Syria or Iraq. And um, we send people through the simulation in these family groups. So they take on a new identity, a new bio, and they have to learn about the reasons these communities fled. So there's a lot of uh, pre-education uh, that they go through um, before they do the simulation. And then the simulation is a live role play simulation um, where they go through what it would be like to flee your country, cross a border, have to uh, stay away from border patrol, or if you get caught, the repercussions of that, um, getting into a new country and then kind of managing the, the system of a new language, how to obtain food and water. Um, so really, it's a, it's a kind of a first-person experience. And then after they go through it, we invite them to sit down and hear the stories of uh, former refugees here in the United States and what that experience was like for them. Um, so it's also a way of building bridges so that they can hear the real stories uh, after they've kind of simulated the experience. But it, it's, again, it's under that, that umbrella of how do we bridge these divides uh, to create mutuality and empathy right so that was one of the programs that, that we had created yeah no and I and that is amazing and I noticed you you've done uh, that p- particular project all over the country working with middle schoolers so I have a, oh, I have a few questions um why middle schoolers and and you know why that age group well what we found uh, through research is that uh, middle schoolers are at a developmental stage where they do role play really well and they're beginning to have the cognitive ability to do uh, some higher level processing about um, their own culture, their own perspective. And so they're really ripe for both the kind of conceptual work um, that you have to be able to do, but they also role play really well. We found that high school students, some of them are a little too cool for, for school. So <laughs> exactly. that, uh, you know, they're a little embarrassed to, to drop into this kind of role play. Um, so we find that that really is a target group. Um, we also do a lot with college students, actually, as well. Oh. So we've been doing it with colleges all around the country. Just got back from Rollins College in Florida oh, wow. uh, a month ago where we hosted it down there. And, um, yeah, so but middle schoolers really are a, a great age to um, – our hope for, for Walk a Mile in My Shoes is to actually bring it into the rural communities. Um, and that's a real target audience for us because they don't have access to relational pluralism mm-hmm. as much as urban centers. And I think this one of the dialogue places that I'm really interested in is the dialogue between rural and um, urban uh, conversations. Mm-hmm. Because I really think, you know, if we look at the political map, that's where it's divided mm-hmm. uh, between our rural and our, our urban centers. So what I think we to talk about these bridging programs, how do we bridge the geography of our urban centers and rural areas? Um, and so we want to bring a walk a mile in my shoes into the curriculum because that's where uh, we think these conversations really are right. uh, important. Have you seen a different? Have you done some rural schools? And if so, have you seen a difference in maybe? And I don't know, but maybe students' willingness or students' transformation or students understanding at all when you do it in an urban community versus a rural versus a suburban community? Yeah, we don't have, um, we've been doing some uh, data on that. We haven't done it with what what I would consider um, 
real rural experiences yet. And I think that's one of the challenges is how do we make this approachable? Because mainly we have to depend upon schools or on usually social studies teachers mm-hmm. or global studies teachers to, to bring this in. And um, yeah, that's kind of been one of our challenges is even um, do they have interest in, in doing that? Yeah. Which shows some of the, you know, the worldview divides around um, our struggle with pluralism, I think. And diversity. Yeah, exactly. I think you're completely right. And and it's interesting because the, your work, either getting people to be interested in it or see it as valuable, I think that dovetails very well with Civity's work. Uh, people think, hey, we already know how to do relationships. But in reality, we can see based on, you know, based on our discourse and based on how we're engaging that we maybe need some guidance in this area or at least guidance in uh, deliberate, empathetic relationship building. Um, and so it, it's, yeah, it's very exciting what you're doing, but I, but it, I imagine it's a challenge. Well, yeah, and I, I, some of the research around those who um, are maybe express xenophobia more or are challenged with um, issues of, of immigration and pluralism, we found that um, a lot of that stems from their own um, fear uh, their own um, fear of the stranger. And I think we have to, uh, people who are um, more uh, reserved on immigration policy um, also rank high when asked the question where they say that they don't feel like they're currently managing the systems of their lives. Mm. So there's already this complexity that they feel uh, like they're not going to be able to manage um their environment that they they feel alienated from their environment and so the the stranger then becomes more of that they represent their own kind of alienation um and that the complexity of the world around them so i think we have to be really sensitive to that those of us that are you know pro um, diversity i think we really do need to be careful about um adding to their anxiety instead uh, i think a lot of the work is if they feel comfortable and feel like they're managing their own lives and managing the complexities of their environment and their communities then they are more open um and so i think those of us that are working on you know those kinds of policies or uh questions of diversity really need to listen to their legitimate fears um and I think we need to kind of try to come alongside those and help them manage the complexity of their lives. And then they're more likely to be open to pluralism and diversity. That's fascinating because there's also a, um, I think, a hesitance on the part of people who may feel marginalized uh, to give that space because the people who feel marginalized have been through hell, really, in a lot of cases and and yeah. feel like, oh, my gosh, I got to give you something else. And in reality, everybody needs something. Everybody's coming to the table or not with some sort of issue or baggage or thing that makes it difficult for us to have these conversations or to, to connect in this way. And, and I, and that's exactly, yeah, that's very difficult to navigate. And it's amazing that you've, you've uh, isolated or hit on that, those concepts. Well, I don't know that we, again, if we had the magic bullet, we could know exactly how to create programs that did that. But I (laughs) think that those of us that are working in this space, those really are, um, 
some of our challenges and opportunities. Yeah. And I noticed uh, on your website that you focus on both internal and external processes. I did want to explore that with you, and, and we're, we're talking about that now, and why it's so important for you to make sure that you're focusing on someone's internal process and those external and relational processes as well. Yeah, and that, um, there's a significant part of the Global Human Project where we talk about the inward journey and giving people um, the tools that they need to do their own, um, what, what I would say is their cultivation of their, their own consciousness. Mm -hmm. And where does, I, I think that people naturally can be compassionate, but our compassion, our capacity to empathize with others gets blocked for certain reasons. And I think an intentional inward journey um, allows us to find those places of being blocked. Um, another concept that we work with a lot is discerning our own shadows, because we're, we're very likely to project our own shadows onto other people, and then um, we find that we have a negative feeling towards those uh, people that hold uh, the projection of our own shadow. So oh, yes. if we can do our own internal work, then other people are free to, to be them, right? Like we don't, we don't have so much baggage that we place on them um, if we're doing our own inner work. So we spend a lot of time talking about um, practices to help us essentially yeah, do our inner work, um, deal with our issues of projection, our shadow work, yeah. uh, to cultivate um, a greater sense of capacity for compassion. Yeah. And I, there's some really interesting research. I just got back from an international symposium on contemplative research. Mm. And there's so much good work being done on the capacity of our contemplative practices to help us dissolve or help us transcend these ego constructs that actually do separate us from each other. And so when we can begin to feel our kind of internal connection with other people, then uh, we're able to respond to them in a, a much more empathetic, compassionate uh, way. I think the, the, the challenge there is can we take another person's perspective? Mm -hmm. And perspective taking is really a key to... Uh, the cultivation of consciousness. And there are these practices that we can do that, that help us um, cultivate that capacity. And um, there are ancient practices and they're all in all religious traditions. Um, we just really have to mine those traditions for, for these, these practices. And, and then create communities of practice that can help us cultivate um, a more openness to other people. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really interested right now on in the the capacity of contemplative practices and mindfulness to help us reduce prejudice and discrimination. Mm. And there's some really good research that's coming out that, that those practices can do that. Oh, that's fascinating. What you said earlier about we project our own shadows, I really try to live by that. Whenever someone annoys me or when I'm not being as generous as I can be, <laughs> I'm like, what is it about them that I that I am like? Okay, there we go. I'm that, and they're doing it, and that's why I don't like. I I really always yeah. try to be to be uh, to look at myself because it's all about it's all about something I do that I don't like. So right, yeah, and it's and it's hard because it's easy to just have that feeling and move on, but it's like no, no, I know this is coming from me. I know. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the practices we talk about. It's called a three-two-one practice, and 
you do it with anyone that you have like this, whatever, like your your negative feeling toward them just feels like, you know, it's over and above what would normally be there when somebody does it. Um, You wouldn't get this upset for for whatever reason, this person. And so what we do is work with that. Like you, you write a letter to them saying, when you do this, you know, and kind of in third person, use their name. And then second person, you actually have a conversation with them. Like when you do this, and then, then you just change all the language and you just say, I, so when I do this, <laughs> this bothers me. And it's a great way to get at these kind of, these, yeah, projections of our own stuff onto other people. Oh, that is fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. It's funny. It's, well, you know, and when you talk about how to help people transcend their ego and feel an internal connection to someone else, I think that's where civity is trying to that's what civity is trying to explore this idea of when we share stories and counter stories we can see ourselves we can find commonality oh hey oh yeah and I want to share something back because that happened to me and and that seems to help people connect talk a little bit about about how you've used civity in your work or how you were doing that kind of thing before civity stepped in well civity yeah brought is bringing some of these really great tools around how do we create space and these what i think are fairly simple practices but maybe that we've lost i don't i I don't know um they feel very natural to me um and we've had um malka come out and do some training um several different times in Louisville and found that to be really helpful because there are these really simple ways in which we can set up space, whether it be between two people or in small groups or in larger groups where um, we practice this art of listening, you know, and uh, we must've forgotten that. And I think there is, um, yeah, I think the, the, the soundbite world or, um, you know, I have to put my thought on my Facebook page to, uh, or my <laughs> yeah. my tweet has to be in this really clear one, you know, almost our, our discourse, our form of discourse is setting up um, polarity yeah. or it's setting up these uh, paradoxes or we, we immediately move to how we may be different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I don't want us to, I mean, I think our differences are really important. And a lot of the work I'm doing right now is around equity building. So I'm not trying to say that we all ought to say, oh, well, we're all pretty similar. Sure. You know, I don't see race. Uh, I, I think those are, I'm, that's not what this civity work is about or the work that we're talking about. It's about how do we create a space where we can hear that difference without us having to respond um, to it, where we can, uh, find these, these human conversations where we can connect. And then we're more likely to be in a space where we can hear the other, others difference and be able to honor that. Mm -hmm. And so I think civity is bringing these great, pretty, you know, simple ways in which we can see each other and connect with each other through our differences. And yeah, that work just feels so so needed right now. And I think the practices and the, the way Civity is uh, training leaders to be able to host that, not only um, like official, um, and I think Civity is doing a good job of saying this is not like these official conversations that we set up. It's just everyday conversations. You know, like when I meet somebody, how do I create an encounter there? 
that is productive or that's meaningful. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just think we've we've lost the art of being able to do that. So they're bringing back the art of, in some ways, it's the art of being human. Right. right. The art of being, having, having human dialogue maybe is, is one of the ways I see it. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, I teach journalism. And so we talk a little bit about the political discourse and what they're kind of walking into as they cover stories. And I actually kind of go back to the, you know, the 18th century and the early 19th century when people absolutely disagreed as vehemently as they do now. But, hey, you've got to help me pull my cow out of the out of the <laughs> or you got to help me fix my right. fence. And so there were these built in, right. like, we still have to live as a community and help each other. And we really don't yeah. have that anymore. And so we haven't, in, in a way, lost this art because we're not engaging in it yeah. every day. When I think that's the online platform that yeah. I have some real, you know, I'm not a Luddite, but I love my phone. I mean, I love, <laughs> I, mean I love that we're being able to talk right now, right? Yeah. But I, I do think the capacity then to to be able to manage the complexities of face-to-face encounter and retrain ourselves around these these processes of of conversation are vitally important Um, because we're not going to get rid of these kind of global connections we're not going to get rid of um you know online education we're not going to get but the challenge then means that we really need to step up engaging these other kind of face-to-face being in proximity with each other and our ability to connect there. And mm-hmm. and Civity's doing that work. I think that's what's so beautiful about yeah. it. Yeah. Oh God, absolutely. Well I'm curious, um, I, I wanna hear some of your stories actually about some of this work. So specifically the Global Human Project, uh, is there a, an anecdote or a specific uh, person or story that you're willing to share about about this work and how it landed? Well, I, I, one of the programs that we created is called The Big Table. Yes. And big this table. program was so awesome. That's yeah, so civity-oriented, man. Yeah. It was um, The Big Table uh, came out of a an encounter, uh, Kathy Berkey, who is also uh, the co-founder of The Big Table, we were talking a couple of years ago around this very issue, like how do we come together through our differences in Louisville um, and just encounter each other? And so we got onto the idea that that usually happens or has happened historically through food, you know, just mm. food and storytelling. Mm-hmm. So we decided to... Um, yeah, create the world's largest potluck. And uh, we found that um, two years ago, the the record was um, 15, uh, 1,800. 1,800. Um, 1,800 people, yeah. Wow. That, and there's some real specific rules for Guinness, the Guinness Book of World Records of what has to happen there. So we thought, well, let's, this is perfect for Louisville. We're kind of a foodie city anyway, and we like to come together um, around food. So let's host this big potluck and let's make the whole purpose of it conversation that happens around tables of eight. Um, so that's what we did. We we hosted the world's largest potluck called the Big Table. Mm-hmm. And the idea was um, you show up with a potluck dish. Um, we have uh, tables of eight um, and there's these pods. So there's four tables and a pod and mm-hmm. then there's a shared uh, food table. Mm. So everybody shows up, brings their food. The, the food um, is uh, a little bit about your story. So the food is a um, a food item, a potluck dish that tells a little bit about who you are, maybe your culture, maybe a, a favorite dish when you were a child. Mm. So you bring that and then um, you sit it down at the, the big table 
And then you find a table of eight. And then we had these conversation cards where um, we played this little game that had these basic questions on them, like what's your uh, what's a favorite family holiday or what's a time when you made your parents proud? There are these just basic human questions. And we played this little game where you you pick a card, you shuffle the cards, you pick one and turn it over and you just answer the question, you know, and it was amazing what happened. I mean, people. Um, we, the first year we had uh, 1300 people show up, we didn't break the world record, but we had 13 people show up and for an hour, they sat around the table, ate one another's food and they simply shared about their lives. And it was so beautiful that we did it in a park and the park was just transformed, um, in this amazing, it was a long road. And everywhere you could look, there were these people sitting at table, eating and telling stories. Yeah. It was kind of like you know, what we would call the, the kingdom of God or the, you know, the reign of God. I mean, it's what people picture when they think about utopia yeah. um, is all this diversity coming around and just being human together. Wow. And so we did it again last year, had 1,500 people last year. And so now it's a, a, a main event in Louisville that people look forward to. And we train table hosts. And this is where the civity training uh, is helpful we train a table host for each of those eight tables to basically facilitate that encounter. Wow. So for every table of eight, we had a table host. So we spend most of our time recruiting uh, table hosts and then training them in this practice of, of hosting conversation. Okay. Is there, wow. what was the, some of the feedback you got? Like what did people say who went through this experience? Oh, well they were just, yeah, people love it. I mean, it's, <laughs> Um, what people want to do, but they don't have spaces to do that. Because you know if you show up at the big table, you're there to meet people you don't know. And you're there to, one, share about who you are, but you're also there to, to listen to another person. Yeah. yeah, people, I mean, all kinds of great stories. We've had several groups that just kind of spontaneously said, this was so fun, let's do it. And so they started a monthly potluck. So they would just get <gasps> together uh, by themselves. I mean, we didn't organize any of that, but what we found is that people like the encounter. Um, so then they want to, want to recreate it. And it, it was really simple. Um, we also had like, um, one of the neat things about it was the diversity at these tables. We had, a the mayor's wife came and she brought a dish and she was sitting next to this Somali, uh, family that had only been there three months. And mm-hmm. the Somali, um, put on his Facebook feed. He's like, oh my gosh, I had this great conversation with the mayor's wife. So it's also bridging these economic and cultural divides um, that wouldn't normally happen. I mean, they wouldn't normally sit down together at a table, right. I don't think, and, and have that kind of experience. So really it is that kind of beautiful, all you have to do is host the space and create a space where everybody's mutual. Nobody owned that table. Right. And it was in a public park. And then very simple, give people ways of connecting with each other. And they want to do it. And and they, they love it when that happens. Yeah, you've been north of 1,000 every time you do it. And now it's an annual event. That's that's incredible. Yeah, and the, the new record's uh, 3,200 that was set in India a couple of months after we did our last Aww. one. So. Um, we're going to have to step up because um, we, re- we really want that world record. So. Oh, you'll get it. You'll get it. Is there yeah. any community? You're doing this in Louisville, right? So is there any community yeah. in Louisville that you feel is not um, 
making an appearance at this event that you want to incorporate or include or get to come? Yeah, I mean, of course, um, I think it is still, although we've done a really good job, the key to that is having diverse um, sponsors at the beginning. So if we can get our table hosts to be diverse, and we did a a good job, uh, we get better at this every year, of really reaching out to communities that may um, maybe a little more hesitant or mm-hmm. may live in a little more monocultural environment. Um, so we're reaching out to their organization. So um, whatever kind of organization they may be involved with, we say, hey, will your organization sponsor the big table? You know, will you get five table hosts? Yeah. Um, and so when we train them in these practices, um, that's the way to get to get people in the doors, have them part of the, the creating of the space. That's because awesome. it really is intimidating, um, or it could be intimidating if um, if that's not something you have a predisposition to to seek out. Right. So the really the key there is involving these kind of organizations uh, at the beginning in the planning and, and getting them to be table hosts. Smart. That's really smart. That's how we have found that to be to be effective. Do you have the next one set? The next big table set? It's always. I think it's always going to be the third. Saturday in September. Okay. Um, so yeah, we're we're planning on it again. One of the things that we're in conversation with the group that plans a big table is how do we take these simple principles and then bring them into uh, uh, everyday kind of encounters. So we've got these really cool uh, conversation cards, and so we're talking about how do we um, sign up restaurants or coffee shops to just have these cards. Uh, on the table, uh, like next to your ketchup. Um, and if we can create this this uh, practice in Louisville of like, oh, that's the Louisville, that's the big table conversation cards. Let's play. Ooh. You know, so we just have this little game where you just, you know, it's it's like a coast. That's what somebody said the other day, and this is a great idea. We don't, we haven't um, marketed this one yet, so it's free for anybody. <laughs> but put these questions on on coasters. You know, and and have these coasters where you're putting your drink down on this question. And we just think it those little simple tools, instead of having, you know, um, surface level bar conversation, you know, have a conversation around um, uh, how did you get through an especially hard time in your life? Yeah. Right. And and just that key may shift the level of encounter that two people have over coffee or so it's those little practices that I think we want to integrate that become more of the cultural norm in Louisville is that we're used to doing that. And I think those little those little keys help people. Yeah, I think, wow, that's amazing. I know, and I'm thinking of a million things as you talk at you know, coffee shops and bars and get the coffee shops to do a little big table. And there's so many ways you could yeah. do this. That and, and I think I hope more communities explore something like this because it sounds like it's been – it's made a difference. Have you noticed um, – I mean, this might be a difficult question to answer, but have you noticed any sort of real-world impacts of the big table, like people working together that you didn't expect or someone being more generous to another group of people that you didn't expect? Yeah, we're doing – we're trying to figure out matrix for I'm, – I'm finishing my Ph.D. right now oh, yeah, and, on education and social change. And one of the things I'm really interested in is how do we – uh, quantitatively and qualitatively measure the impact of these kinds of encounters. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the things that we're um, working on currently. And 
which leads me to the, the, the next initiative that um, I'm working in on is this Lean Into Louisville project, which is essentially about how do we raise collective awareness around historical and systemic discrimination uh, towards uh, marginalized uh, communities in Louisville. Yeah. Um, all, all types of marginalization, whether it be race or um, sexual orientation mm -hmm. or gender, uh, other able populations. So we're trying to measure how we bring groups together to break down these uh, prejudice and stereotypes. So um, unfortunately, I don't have any great metrics on knowing <laughs> how you make a dent in that. Ultimately, I think it's more of, um, I think we can feel it. You know, yeah. do we feel like we belong as a community? Do we feel like we are connecting with each other? And I guess there's ways you could measure that. But I also think it's just kind of this intuitive sense of, mm -hmm. you know, do I feel like our community appreciates each other, um, and and how do we cultivate that? If if Sibidi comes up with any great measurements on that, please let us know. Well, you and I should talk because I just got my doctorate and used Sibidi as sort of a guide for my research, so we should certainly talk. Oh, beautiful. Yes, but yes. I yes. <laughs> But I do. What are some of the primary specific challenges that Louisville does face? I mean, it sounds like you've thought about lean into Louisville as a way to address those challenges, and you've mentioned some larger constructs. What What are the specific challenges that you think your community faces? Well, that's a yeah, a good question, and yeah. and, and Louisville still does. Um, we're um, kind of a Midwest community. Some people consider us Southern. Some people consider us Midwest. So mm -hmm. we're kind of on this line, and we've been one of these communities that does have some really historical uh, racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. uh, we have what's called the Ninth Street Divide, which is uh, on different sides of that street. There is a significant amount of uh, difference in race, but also the equity numbers and the, the differences there are disturbing. In fact, um, a health report that came out last year uh, showed that there are two zip codes in Louisville where um, the average life expectancy of a man is 10 years different. Whoa. And those, those neighborhoods are 10 miles away from each other. Wow. So, um, you know, they, that's a huge issue, right? I mean, yeah. to, to know what neighborhood you live in can make a different, take off 10 years of your life. That's significant. Yeah. So Louisville has some significant challenges that we need to address in overcoming those kind of systemic um, forms of discrimination. So health disparity, housing, mm -hmm. uh, economic levels. Louisville still has some, some challenges that we need to become aware of. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that work is on um, issues of what does it mean to be white? How, mm -hmm. What is white privilege? How do we continue to... Uh, benefit from that and how do we institutionalize that white privilege mm -hmm. and it's a lot about us waking up to those realities and then asking the question how do we come together as a community to solve those problems yeah. yeah and so i think you know these these questions about conversation and how do we have hard conversations that's a, another place where i think the work that activity is doing is really important because these are hard conversations yes um, the, the conversations around race um, are some of the most difficult, not only ideological differences, but, um, you know, the racial differences. So we really need to learn as a community how to have hard conversations. Yeah. Um, and I think some of these practices that we're talking about can help us do that. I know that your community recently faced a tragedy uh, in the midst of doing this work. And so I'm curious uh, if you're willing to discuss it, you know, what happened and how you 
are dealing with it both personally and in the context of the work you're trying to do? Yes, this is um, this was quite um, tragic. Our chief equity officer with the Louisville Metro government, um, her father um, and another person of color were uh, shot and killed at a Kroger's, um, specifically a, a racial um, killing. Mm. And um, yeah, it really tore our community up. Um, and it was interesting, you know, she's the, uh, um, the Lean into Louisville is a program that's coming out of her office. Oh, wow. And so it was just a stark reminder that um, these types of racial hatred, these types of divide um, are significant. And I think that's one of the things that's arising in our awareness right now is that what we, you know, if we thought we were, um, you know, uh, beyond race, that that's really not true. In fact, there's significant um, uptick in uh, racial violence and white supremacy, mm-hmm. and so I think, um, yeah, that uh, that experience really um, revealed the undercurrent that's still alive in, in a lot of our communities. Yeah. And so, how are we going to, you know, there's a there's an element of you know psychological health. Um, that was also uh, involved in a lot of these, but there's also, um, you know, basic um, hate groups. And how do we um, have those challenging conversations? How do we create a community so that in five years or in ten years there aren't those types of of groups or movements that are in our communities? And and that's hard work. I mean, there's no easy answer to that. Right. Um, but the the realization that those are still dynamics that we need to be dealing with as a community are really important. And I think the, the waking up to those realities is hard, and yet that's what's happening. It's true. And I think you mentioned earlier, you know, the social media landscape, and it's easy for us to share an article, push a button, make a comment. But there is hard work and and complex work to be done, and there are horrible things that happen and while we don't want those things to happen, uh, it, they we can use them as inspiration to to do the work or to really you know lean in as you as you as you called your endeavor uh, just to to try to address this and, and to and like you say setting a goal of in five to ten years making sure this doesn't happen anymore and that we are actually talking to each other and of course it's hard and no one has the answer or it would be fixed but but it's, it's so. Right heartening that people are willing to do the work, you know, people like you. Well, and I think what we're all, um, you know, waking up to the the realities of that and the challenges of of doing that work. And and we can't let our, um, you know, how do we deal with our anger around these issues in Mm -hmm. a way, ways that don't continue the polarization Mm -hmm. um, or separating our communities, which is really hard. How do we honor our anger and frustration while um, transmutating that energy into some kind of way in which we can use it productively. And again, that goes back to a lot of our inner work conversation, and and that's really um, challenging, but important that that we do that inner work exactly for that reason. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I really appreciate you addressing that question and and talking with me a little bit about it. I think one thing we've well, noticed the real yeah. that's the real stuff, right? I mean, because the rest yeah. of it remains like I've got a lot of great concepts in my head <laughs> about, but that 
you know, that's really where the, you know, the rubber hits the road yeah. in those kinds of, of conversation and why we need these tools. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, bringing it up no I, yeah thank you i appreciate that um we've we've noticed at civity and i imagine you have as well that things like that or just the uptick in racial hatred online or the election itself have actually made people aware people who didn't think their relationships were an issue all of a sudden you're like hey yeah. maybe and so i i not that i want any of any of that to be happening but i am heartened that people are understanding that this is something we need to give some time and effort to, and, and that maybe we need to work on it. So I'm really hoping that trend mm-hmm. continues. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the hope and, uh, and the awareness is that, that we can be energized to, yeah. um, find ways to collectively address it. Yeah, absolutely. So at this moment, where are you going from here? What What's your next move with the idea of engaging people in your community and across the country? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. So <laughs> um, one of the, some of the work that we're doing with Lean Into Louisville is how does um, the question of how does the city raise collective consciousness? Mm-hmm. And then how do, how do we collaboratively um, engage these structural issues so that's um yeah that we're we're not exactly sure one of the things that we're doing with that is to create um, a variety of kinds of programs to help us uh, wake up so we really feel like the first challenge there is waking up to both our own conscious and unconscious bias and then asking questions about how has that bias been put into place in these structures in our city that are continuing to uh, create inequity. So I think a, a lot of the, the work we're doing is how do we uh, encourage programs um, all over our city from different groups um, to actually yeah, raise our awareness. We've got a little uh, slogan that we're using, um, waking up, woke, and work. <laughs> so where do we meet people? <laughs> Where do we meet people on that, what we call the ally spectrum? You know, where yeah. do we meet people at different places? Because we're all at different places. And, yes. you know, guilting and shaming people for being where they are doesn't help. Right. So we really need to be sensitive to, you know, what are people's fears? What are people's concerns? And how do we meet them where they are and create effective programs to, to move people um, f- further in that work? So it really is kind of... What's exciting about it is where it's coming from a real high level. I mean, uh, the, our mayor, uh, Mayor uh, Fisher, is really behind this work, and Lean Into Louisville will launch in January. And um, so we're getting a lot of support from government, from other sectors, the nonprofit sector, of course, and our advocacy groups. So I really think we have um, a chance at, at moving the needle on this in the, in the coming years. So that's really the focus of what we're working on now and continuing to do, you know, welcome all of my shoes, um, the big table. We thought about doing the big table on ninth street. I just mentioned that ninth yes. street was this divide. And so what if we do a big table on ninth street That'd be you know, so neat. Um, and say, we're, we're no longer going to buy into these divides. Um, we're going to connect with each other um, around that. So, uh, the great thing about Louisville is we got all these really cool, uh, engaged people yeah. that are doing just amazing things. And I think bringing us together to create a, a community of practice 
where we're learning from each other and collaborating with each other. Um, that's what makes the work fun. So more of that. More of that, exactly. You sound, yeah. Judd, I, you are doing some incredible work. I, I am in awe of how much you've done to engage and connect people and enlighten us to issues that others face. And so um, I wish you all the best as you continue your work and, and, and hopefully Civity and, and everyone can support you. Um, and I thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for doing the podcast and getting out these, these best practices and the ways that, ways people are engaging that in their communities. I think this cross-community learning is really important about learning about what's going on around the country and other cities and and best practices and um, civities leading the way in in doing that. So thank you for all of your work and uh, let's continue and let's keep talking about it. Let's do it. I, I agree. We have been talking today with Judd Hendricks, Executive Director of the Global Human Project in Louisville, Kentucky, as well as Project Catalyst for Lean in Louisville. Judd is helping advance and realize the Big Table, Walk a Mile Project, and others that help us engage with each other across our differences and divides. Judd, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Good to be with you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a world. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.